From Public Radio International, this is The World. A co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. It's Friday, June 15th. I'm Lisa Mullins in Boston. Today, tension in Egypt leading up to the key presidential vote this weekend. And in Greece, another critical election for the euro. A few weeks ago, angry voters couldn't decide which party should lead them. The way the Greeks voted last time was a bit like someone who's just broken up going into rebound sex. And later in the program, an elementary school food blogger in Scotland. And I look at some of her ratings on the food and where she gives it a low health rating where I think it's healthy or vice versa. But that's how a nine-year-old sees her food. PRI's The World is made possible in part by the Medtronic Foundation, celebrating Project 6, the worldwide volunteer effort by Medtronic employees during the month of June. Project 6, global reach, local impact. Learn more at Medtronic.com. I'm Lisa Mullins, and this is The World. Egyptians are preparing for a tense weekend. They're voting tomorrow and Sunday in the final round of their presidential election, but they're doing so under a cloud of uncertainty following a controversial ruling by Egypt's highest court. The court dissolved the parliament that Egyptian voters had proudly elected in their first post-revolution vote. Supporters of the revolution say the court's action amounts to a soft coup by Egypt's ruling military council. The world's Matthew Bell reports on the reaction in Cairo. It's been a bad week for supporters of the Egyptian revolution. Egypt has no parliament now. Security forces stationed around the building are reportedly under orders not to allow anyone inside, including lawmakers. The army has given soldiers and military police the power to arrest civilians. On top of that, Egypt's Supreme Court said Ahmed Shafiq, a man who says he admires the former dictator Hosni Mubarak, will be allowed to compete in the runoff election this weekend. As the brutal Cairo heat began to subside this afternoon, a few hundred demonstrators gathered at a mosque across the Nile River from Tahrir Square. 24-year-old Khalid Osama says it's time for supporters of the revolution to return to the square and to boycott these presidential elections. If I went to vote, Osama says, it would be giving legitimacy to military rule. This election is not free and not fair, he says. Someone at the rally is handing out bumper stickers that say, the revolution continues, invalidate your vote by voting no for both of the candidates. It's hard to predict what kind of impact the call for a boycott will have. In one of the oldest working-class neighborhoods of Cairo, it seems most people are eager to vote. Mohammed makes a living sanding down and then repainting motorcycles. He works in an alleyway with the volume on the TV news cranked up. Mohammed says he was happy when the Supreme Court decided to let Mubarak's former prime minister, Ahmed Shafiq, stay on the ballot, and he says that's who he'll vote for. He's a good man. He understands politics. Mohammed goes on to say that he would like to see Mubarak come back. Things were safer under his rule, he says. There was more security. Around the corner, sitting in front of a shop selling shiny water pipes, 19-year-old Ismail sees my microphone and offers to sing a tune. (laughs) 
Ismael tells me he sings strictly about romance, and when it comes to politics, it's religion that concerns him. Ismael says he will vote against the Muslim Brotherhood's candidate, Mohamed Morsi, and for Ahmed Shafi. For me, myself, I believe that Shafi should be the president. Here in Egypt, we shouldn't have Islamist president to run the country. We have Christians, we have different religions in the country. And yeah, maybe the majority are Muslims, but also we can't have an Islamist to run the country. The Muslim Brotherhood has denounced the dissolution of parliament. One of its leaders accused the military leadership of orchestrating a coup. But the Brotherhood is still set to participate in the runoff election. The owner of a small shop that sells bags of rice and pasta gives his name as Mustafa. He has a poster of the Brotherhood's candidate on the front door of his shop, and he says he's still hopeful that Mohamed Morsi can win the election. If Shafiq wins the election, he says, it will show that the military used the courts to bring about a coup, and it will mean the end of the revolution or at least the end of the first chapter of the Egyptian Revolution, says Ashraf Khalil. He's the author of the book Liberation Square. Khalil says an election victory by Shafiq, however, would not mean the end of the effort to change Egypt. Have the Egyptian revolutionaries and the activists and and just the larger population, have they succeeded in changing the way that things truly work in Egypt? No, they have not. And now we're moving backward. And that is absolutely clear, but it does not mean that the effort to revolutionize Egypt has failed. In the meantime, the runoff election does appear set to take place, despite all the confusion and uncertainty about what the results will mean. For The World, I'm Matthew Bell in Cairo. To Syria now, where the rebellion against President Bashar al-Assad is intensifying. Today, the head of the United Nations monitors in the country said that a recent spike in bloodshed poses significant risks for his team. And he says that could prompt a pullout by the U.N. One foreigner in Syria who's already been told to get out is Father Paolo Delalio. He's a Jesuit priest. He's lived in Syria for more than 20 years now. Father Delalio first went there to oversee the restoration of a thousand-year-old monastery about 50 miles outside of Damascus. The monastery later became a popular tourist attraction in Syria. But recently, Father Delalio has been critical of the government's violent campaign against the opposition. And now, he says, he's been ordered to leave the country. The reason I'm leaving is because I have uh, been too clear in my speaking and my exercise of freedom of opinion and expression. Uh, the, the authority of the church and then the authority of uh, the Syrian authority has um, asked uh, me to... Uh, go out of the country. Who who said, Father, that you need to leave? Was it the government or the church? Both of them. You you say that you are having to leave. You're being expelled, basically, because of your outspokenness. Um, what are you saying? What what is it that's that's uh, forcing you to leave? I ask, for example, that uh, the wounded people should be respected. I'm asking that the doctors and the nurses uh, taking care of the wounded people and the people trapped in uh, closed areas uh, under shelling should be respected. Uh, this is the very dangerous thing I'm saying. I'm saying that these people is worthy to have democracy as anybody else. I'm saying that instead to be 
afraid of each other. We should be afraid for each other and to take care of each other in, in, in this country. Uh, this is my, this is the big mistake that I, I, for, I'm working for Islamic Christian harmony. I'm working for inter-Islamic harmony. And, and this is shit, it seems is not, is not well received. You have reason to feel strongly about what's happening there. Are you still proselytizing harmony? Yes, yes. You uh, may I'm for nonviolence, and I hope that the international community will stay on nonviolence, but not with 300 observers. We need 3,000 courageous observers and 30,000 assistants from the international, the global civil society to come and work with the Syrian civil society at the grass level to try to repair the wounds and the disasters that have been uh, done uh, on one year of international irresponsibility, of international absence, leaving these people just in front of his tragedy. Are you saying that you believe, I mean, you're saying that there should be more United Nations observers on the ground there, many, many more. Are you saying that you feel as though, in your view, that the West should be arming the rebels? This is it's not up to me to say something like this. Uh, the church declares that uh, the, the right to defend yourself is not against your Christian faith. Uh, this is a fact. The um, Islamic religion says the same. But we all agree that it's better when we can do things without violence or with the less possible exercise of violence. Father Paolo Delaglio is leader of the Catholic community at the Monastery of St. Moses the Abyssinian in Syria. He's just been ordered to leave the country. Our next story takes us to Istanbul. Religious authorities in the Turkish city are trying to get more women to pray in mosques. So the office of Istanbul's mufti, or chief Muslim religious official, has embarked on a project to make mosques more friendly for women. The project's part of the governing Islamic Party's efforts to expand the role of religion in daily life. From Istanbul, Matthew Brunwasser reports. The project is called Beautifying the Mosques of Istanbul for Women, and it's trying to change how Turkish women pray. Kadri Avja Erdemli is the deputy mufti of Istanbul and one of Turkey's highest-ranking female religious officials. She organized the study of 3,100 mosques, and was appalled by what she found. I was really upset. Women are being excluded from religious practice, which is in itself un-Islamic. According to global surveys, women are more religious than men. But despite this, in many mosques, the facilities for women were either in bad condition or there was not enough space. While the investigators found that women weren't intentionally excluded from mosques, neglect was widespread. Now Turkey is prosperous, and more importantly, with the Islamic AK party in power, has the political will to fix the problem. At the 16th century Kaluch Ali Pasha Mosque, Imam Selman Okumush admits his mosque was part of the problem. My mosque was like this. Some cables, some different things were in the women's section. In many mosques, the prayer areas set aside for women are tiny, moldy and ugly, but Okimush is proud of the improvements made at his mosque. 
He shows me the new women's bathroom, shiny and modern. They need slippers because they have to wash their feet. Mosques have faucets so worshippers can ritually wash their feet before prayers, but they're only for men, because women are uncomfortable washing in public, and the facilities at mosques are often poor. They generally wash at home, or they might decide it's too much bother and just pray at home. They don't want to show their bodies when they want to take ablution. So the mosque got a new machine, which might make the difference for women. An electric foot dryer. It looks just like a hand dryer, except that it's placed near the floor at an angle comfortable to dry your feet. And Okumush says changes like this appear to be working. Outside, worshipper Zeynep Gunay says public expressions of religion have become more socially acceptable in Turkey since the Islamic AK party took power 10 years ago. And Gunay says she feels the increase of female energy in mosques as well. It all started with special prayer times for women, and in the past, it used to only be old women who prayed. Now I notice that the average age of women in the mosques have gone down. Just a few years ago, she says, women could be forced out of the mosque during crowded prayer times, such as Friday afternoon, when the overflow of men would be channeled into the women's section. No one is suggesting that men and women should pray together. The idea is that women should be part of the same whole, separate but not isolated. Vildan Bilishik stopped by for prayers after her nearby marketing course given by an international cruise ship line. She says it's important for everyone, men and women, to pray in the mosque. Praying with the community gives you a special kind of spirituality. When you're praying alone, you might not be able to concentrate so well. Different ideas can pop up. Whatever pops up in Turkey's eternally strained relations between piety and its secular state, analysts say the changes are part of the Islamic governing party's efforts to extend religion into more spheres of public life. For the world, I'm Matthew Brunwasser in Istanbul. You can see pictures of many of the mosques in Istanbul and the women's sections at theworld.org. Our GeoQuiz global hit and a lot more still to come. This is PRI. The world is brought to you by PRI with help from the Medtronic Foundation, celebrating Project Six, the worldwide volunteer effort by Medtronic employees during the month of June. Project Six: Global Reach, Local Impact. Learn more at Medtronic.com. I'm Lisa Mullins, and this is the world. There are a lot of food blogs on the web, but not all of them get some three million hits in just six weeks. Martha Payne doesn't write your average food blog, though. Her subject: school lunches, and she knows them well. She's nine. Martha calls her blog "Never Seconds." She posts pictures of her lunch at the school cafeteria, and she rates the food. Now, this week, school officials told Martha to stop taking pictures of her food. Today, though, they changed their minds. The BBC's Colin Blaine in Glasgow can tell us now why they did change their mind and uh, allow her to write on the blog once again. Well, the ban didn't come around initially because the reviews that she was giving to her meals were so bad. In fact, the final review was ten out of ten. I think what happened was a Scottish newspaper had a headline which said the dinner ladies at the school should be fired. It was a bit tongue-in-cheek, but the council at Argyll and Butte took exception. They said Martha's photos, which were taken in the school canteen, must stop because they represented only a fraction of the choices available. And of course, what followed from that, because she had so many followers. 
was a torrent of criticism of that decision from around the world on Twitter and on Martha's website. Now, that meant that the council was under pressure and they backed off and reversed the ban. Now, as you're suggesting, Martha's blog has gotten an awful lot of support from all corners. And just looking at it here, one of the most recent pictures that she has of one of her meals is mac and cheese with a little bit of broccoli. It looks like orange jello on the side. She says, macaroni and cheese at the school is so creamy, so nice to have with crunchy radishes and peppers. You don't hear that from a lot of nine-year-olds. On the foodometer, or foodometer, she gave it a 10 out of 10. Mouthfuls, 37 mouthfuls. Pieces of hair, zero. Now, it sounds like she puts a lot of thought into what she's doing here. Maybe that's one of the reasons that she's attracted so many people who also contribute interesting pictures of their own foods in various cafeterias around the world. Martha's father, David, is one of her biggest supporters. Let's hear from him now. He's talking about what gets Martha going and what has accrued so much support for her, even among British chefs. It's of interest to Martha what she's eating, and as a parent, it's of interest to me what she's eating. It has really enthused people to look again at the issue of school dinners and the support of Nick Nairn and Jamie Oliver. It really just kind of helps keep the issue at the forefront, and it does show that children, young children, do care about what they eat. And here's an example of a child saying, this is what I like. And and I look at some of her ratings on the food and where she gives it a a low health rating where I think it's healthy or vice versa, but that's how a nine-year-old sees her food. Now, as you said, the ratings she gives are generally pretty high. The reason for doing this blog, though, in the beginning isn't necessarily just to rate the food, but she was doing it as a charity effort. She was raising money for a food charity, correct? That's right. This is a charity which provides food for school children in Malawi, and they have described Martha's efforts as amazing. They have said that she will be feeding hundreds of children through the efforts of herself and those who've donated money. Her target was £7,000, which is about $10,000. She's way over that, five times over that at this point. So she's done really well. The other thing she was doing, it was a writing project. She's interested in becoming a journalist. And my goodness, she's had something of a lesson in how modern day journalism can go viral. Can you explain just why you think people have become so interested in Martha and Martha's blog? I think it's interesting. Everybody has been to school. Everybody's had a school meal at some time. So it has a universal appeal. And the way it's written, it's so simple, it's so honest, it's so naive at times. I don't think there's much criticism in there. And I think that's why there was such a strong reaction worldwide. People felt that the council were being draconian. In a way, there really was an infringement of freedom of speech. So it's good that the council, I think, has backed off. And I think perhaps that will, in the end, give them some better publicity. But it's in many ways, been a public relations nightmare for them. Colin Blaine in Glasgow from the BBC, thank you. You're welcome, thank you very much. We've got a link to Martha's blog at theworld.org. Now another story that caught our eye this week involves beans, guar beans to be precise. You might not be familiar with them, but Halliburton is. The company says its profits dropped recently because of a lack of guar beans. Turns out the guar gum used in Halliburton's hydraulic fracturing operations, you know, fracking, the controversial method used to drill for deep natural gas deposits. As for what guar gum is exactly, we asked Patrick DeJusto, who writes the monthly What's Inside column for Wired magazine. Guar gum is used in food as a thickening agent because it's very much like cornstarch. It can be used as a lubricant in drilling. Because while it's used as a thickener in ice cream, guar gum is less thick than mud. So as they drill through rock and mud, guar gum 
and being less thick actually works as a lubricant. Well, we asked David Biello to chime in. He is the associate editor for Environment and Energy at Scientific American Magazine, and we asked him to start off telling us everything he knows about guar beans in 30 seconds or less. Wow, that's uh, quite a test. Well, uh, the guar bean is an agricultural crop primarily grown in India. The name actually means cow food, and that's what they used to use it for in India. But now it is primarily grown to produce guar gum, which is used as a thickener in foods and has a variety of other industrial applications. So it's pretty amazing that the price of a little guar bean can have such a large impact on an enormous industrial process or the profit margin of a major company such as Halliburton. Seems counterintuitive, but how does that happen? That is surprising. And actually, that suggests that guar gum is becoming quite the desirable commodity and that we will soon see it growing in places other than India. Um, How it can have such an outsized impact on fracking is because fracking, as you know, is done primarily with water, and that's the main ingredient in their kind of special sauces for breaking apart the rock down there to get the natural gas out. But in addition to the water, there's sand, petrochemicals, and then there's guar gum. Obviously, the water and sand are cheap or free, and the petrochemicals are relatively inexpensive. That makes guar gum potentially one of the more expensive bits in the special sauce, and thus it can start to have this outsized impact. That said, these uh, special sauces tend to vary from company to company, so it's likely that we would see some replacements for guar gum in the not-too-distant future. So how about if we look at this from the other direction? How do these big processes affect the production and the availability of the very substance they rely on? For instance, are the guar beans, well, is it likely that they'll become scarce or that more people might start growing them to feed the demand? Yeah, absolutely. They've already become scarce. And this shows how, you know, something like the weather can have knock-on effects kind of halfway around the world. And and this is the era of globalization. These kinds of supply chain issues are more and more common. It's particularly true with agricultural products. I think probably the most common example is with corn and ethanol. It's been used to kind of cut down on our oil imports. But turning all that corn into ethanol has had knock-on effects on everything from cattle feed to food prices around the world. And then those food prices, those high food prices tend to make people upset. So does what's happening right now with the little guar bean create opportunity or present a huge problem as it seems to be right now, at least for Halliburton? It's both. (laughs) That's probably not a very satisfying answer. It's a problem in that for the moment, there's not enough guar gum to go around. And so they're going to you know, the prices will probably continue to rise in the short term. In the long term, that means farmers will plant more guar bean, will probably start growing it in the United States a little bit more, and uh, Halliburton will also work on ways to kind of minimize, let's say, its exposure to this tiny bean from India. David Biello, Associate Editor for Environment and Energy at Scientific American. Thanks for being on the program and explaining all about the guar bean. Thank you. Thank you. This is PRI, Public Radio International. I'm Lisa Mullins. Coming up, Sunday's election in Greece boils down to a referendum on austerity, and some think the anti-austerity party is glossing over the details. Just like a nice fairy tale for stupid people. And later in the program, the story behind the man walking a tightrope tonight across Niagara Falls. 
GRI's The World is made possible in part by the Medtronic Foundation, celebrating Project 6, the worldwide volunteer effort by Medtronic employees during the month of June. Project 6, global reach, local impact. Learn more at Medtronic.com. I'm Lisa Mullins, and this is The World, a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH in Boston. This Sunday, Greeks head to the polls again. There were elections last month, but no party won a majority, and no one formed a new government coalition. This time, angry voters, sick of bailouts and austerity, may have an impact on the future of the euro currency. The world's Clark Boyd has more now from Athens. In one of the city's main squares, supporters gather for another party rally ahead of Sunday's elections. This one is for Syriza. That's a coalition of left-leaning political parties looking to unseat the center-left and center-right parties that have taken turns governing Greece for decades. Syriza is led by Alexis Tsipras, who is young, charismatic, and photogenic. Many Greeks voted for Syriza because they were frustrated and upset with the crisis and the politicians who they feel brought economic ruin down on them. Just how upset and frustrated are Greek voters? Katerina Vrana is from Greece but lives in London. She's a stand-up comedian. Here's how she's been explaining the Greek elections to her audience. The way the Greeks voted last time was a bit like someone who's just broken up uh, going into rebound sex. Some Greek voters, Vrana says, abstained. They didn't vote at all. Others continued having sex with their ex. They voted for the old parties. And finally, some were angry and wanted revenge. They just want to prove that they can have sex with whomever they want. They have the choice. They, they can do. So, um, you, know, you know, the young toy boy, that's Cyprus. Uh, and they go, no, you know, he's young. He'll do me well. And it's like, no, he's young. He'll do you badly just for a long time. Vrana, clearly, doesn't buy the message of Syriza or its messenger, Alexis Tsipras. She's not alone. A crowd gathers at a local privately run museum for a poetry reading. Maria Sardi, an Islamic art historian, does volunteer work here. She says that Syriza is making a bunch of populist promises it can't keep if it wins the election. But people, she says, are buying it. The problem in Greece is that people are not accustomed to listen, to hear the truth. They always like uh, to hear their politicians promising things that deep inside us we know that they are not able to do. What Syriza says is just like a nice fairy tale for stupid people. Sardi's husband is Yanis Verifikis. He fears that Syriza's policies would leave Greece isolated. Their political way is to bring us out of the Eurozone and European Union, the, which is something that I don't want to happen in my country. It is very important because I believe in the Euro. Let's be clear, neither Verifikis nor Sardi are fans of the old parties, PASOK and New Democracy, either. Both say they'll find smaller parties to vote for on Sunday in the hope that their choices may end up in some kind of coalition government. The race itself is anything but decided. Syriza appears to be running neck and neck with new democracy. Nikos Chrysokoidis runs a family-owned stock brokerage in Athens. He voted for new democracy in May, and he says he will again on Sunday. I have no illusions. There have been many mistakes that should be cured, and uh, these mistakes were done by new democracy politicians as well as the central socialist governments as well. On the other hand, I still feel that uh, the, the people who are there to act in the policy I would like and I, I believe is good for the country 
are these people? Chrysokoides fears that Syriza's policies would take the country backward 50 years instead of forward. Most here say that whatever the outcome of the vote on Sunday, a government of some kind needs to be formed as quickly as possible. And that might mean at least some of the parties putting aside their normally vitriolic politics and forming a coalition, says Greek political analyst John Nomikos. This is a critical dilemma for us. We are in a financial war here, right? If we are going to exist or just become a failed state. So this is not a joke. I mean, they have to join forces to fight in order to be alive. Others are trying to keep things in perspective. One voter told me that she talks with her grandfather about the crisis. Her grandfather, she says, reminds her that he had no shoes to wear as a kid, no electricity, no refrigerator, and still, he says, he's managed to live a long, good life. So the crisis is the crisis, the voter told me. Life, she said, is another thing, and will survive. For The World, this is Clark Boyd in Athens. It's tough to find humor in Greece's economic crisis, but comedian Katrina Verana tries. Hear more of Clark's interview with her at theworld.org. In Norway, the trial of self-confessed mass killer Anders Breivik is entering its closing stages. It could end as early as next week. Breivik has admitted that he killed 77 people in two incidents last July. One was a bombing in Oslo and the other a shooting rampage at a youth camp on the Norwegian island of Utøya. But the central issue at the trial is whether Breivik is sane. The experts can't agree. And that leaves a big question mark looming over the trial's outcome. Per Egil Hege is a journalist with the Norwegian newspaper Aftenposten. He is now in Oslo. And you have been following this trial very closely. What have the psychiatric experts been saying about whether this man is sane and therefore responsible for his actions? Well, there were two um, teams of uh, psychiatric experts appointed. Uh, The first team was appointed uh, just after the massacre and the tragedy, and they delivered their report in November saying that he was legally insane and accordingly he cannot be sentenced to prison. Uh, This uh, caused uh, quite a storm of criticism. So... The court appointed uh, a second team of psychiatrists, and when they gave their report in April, they had the opposite conclusion, that he is legally sane. Well, Per, one of the reasons we're speaking to you about this issue is that you have written a book that's roughly translated as The Sovereign Monster, in which you argue that experts, especially psychologists and psychiatrists, are misused in trials in Norway. Why is that? And that is because the courts and the judges have treated them with too much reverence and too little criticism. Uh, and I, I had my first experience of this many, many years ago when I was only 19 years old and a, a, a trainee journalist. Uh, and this was a local trial in a small village in Norway where the uh, expert, who was an expert on motor vehicles, took over the whole trial, parked the judge in the corner and got it the way he wanted. Has that been happening in other cases as well that you've seen? Is it a pattern? Yes, I have seen that in other cases, which I have reported as a journalist, and I've also been an expert witness myself and and seen a terrible uh, outcomes of trials. Well, in this case, we can say that there's a Norwegian Board of Forensic Psychiatry, which is assessing these reports. And I want you to comment on that in just a minute. But first, I want to introduce now Christine Bjelland, who is the vice chairwoman of the group that represents the survivors and relatives of Anders Breivik's victims. Uh, Christine, uh, your son, 15 years old, was on the island of Utøya as well, correct? That's right. 
he survived. He's okay. He's still in school, managing his everyday life as best he can, as well as so many hundreds of other young people. And that's who you are representing as part of this group. What have the families of these young people, and perhaps the young people themselves, been saying about this conflicting testimony concerning Anders Breivik's mental health and his sanity? Uh, some would very much like him to be accountable for what he has done. But on the other hand, there are also many members that want him to be unaccountable because then he will be unable to publish anything. Nothing he ever says or does will be taken seriously. So um, it's very difficult to have one common voice for all the um, affected. I wonder, Per, if it's possible... Um, that there would be two very distinct impressions and that both are valid, or at least there's no clear definition on his sanity. That is a possibility. There is also a possibility that he has been feigning uh, either illness or has succeeded in in faking sincerity, as the saying goes. Uh, But uh, uh, what is beyond doubt is that the Forensic Commission, which has to approve the report by uh, medical experts, including psychiatric experts, uh, put up an absolutely unbelievable performance. The chairman of the commission, who is a professor of medicine, was not able to account coherently for what they had been doing. Let me ask you both in conclusion, uh, Per and Christine, why in the bigger picture of this case at least, this all matters in terms of of accountability, because unless something unforeseen happens, Anders Breivik has confessed to the crime and he is very likely to spend the rest of his life in custody. Christine? He will be taken away from society, whether he is accountable or not. He will be locked away. Like some of our members have asked, will I ever meet this person on the street again? And we have been promised that whatever the verdict is, he will never face his victims again. And Per, what is the larger picture here for you in terms of the Norwegian criminal justice system? We now have to set up a commission to look over the role of experts in the Norwegian court system, Norwegian legal system. But it's uh, such a terrible tragedy that 77 people had to die before they did that. They should have done it long ago. I want to thank you both for talking with us. Christine Bjelland, who is the vice chairwoman of the group that represents survivors and relatives of the victims of Anders Breivik, and Per Egelhega, who's an author and journalist with the Norwegian newspaper called Aftenposten. Thank you both. No problem. Thank you. After the U.S.-led invasion of Iraq and the toppling of Saddam Hussein, there were many stories of Iraqis around the globe wanting to go back home to help rebuild their country. One of those Iraqis was Azam Awash. He was living in California. He'd left Iraq in 1978. In 2003, he went back. He wanted to restore the Mesopotamian marshes. Those marshes used to be a rich wetland habitat in southern Iraq. They were about the size of Connecticut. Alwash grew up near the marshes. His father was a government water engineer, and they took trips there together. Years later, rebels living in the Iraqi marshland rose up against Saddam Hussein. In the 1990s, Saddam retaliated, and he had the wetlands drained. When Azam Alwash read about this in California, he was stunned. He says it was like draining the Florida Everglades, except that the Iraq marshes are twice the size. It took Saddam a lot of work back then. 
between 92 and 95, literally every piece of equipment, literally every piece of equipment that was available in Iraq was used in the hugest engineering project to excavate six major rivers and to build thousands upon thousands of miles of uh, embankments surrounding the Tigris and Euphrates tributaries to basically, essentially, deprive the marshes of its source of life, the water of the Tigris and Euphrates. And the reason for that, as advertised, is basically to recover agricultural land. We all knew that the marshes were the refuge of the rebels, and they have been so since Babylonian times. Essentially, it was to deprive the resistance of a place to operate from. What have you done to try to turn things around and get water rerouted to the marshes? A huge project. <laughs> um, it was the people of the marshes that restored the marshes. It was the people themselves that breached the dikes and allowed the water to come back in, even before Azam Alwash arrived back in Iraq in June 2003. Even before Baghdad fell, the first embankments were breached by people of the marshes. They did that because they wanted a way of life. They wanted to return their way of life. You see, in these marshes, people had lived and integrated with their environment forever. Ladies and gentlemen, this is sustainable living exemplified. This is where mankind had lived for 7,000 years in harmony with the environment. My contribution, if there is any, really is limited to using my scientific knowledge, which I, of course, gained in the United States, to help these people bring about a sustainable way of life, given that the natural flow of the Tigris and Euphrates is not controlled by dams. I am happy to report to your listeners that water from the Tigris is now heading to the central marshes. The central marshes, instead of drying in the summer, as they usually do, are increasing in size as we speak. We may very well go back to about 50% restoration, which between you and I is the maximum I can hope for without implementing revolutionary irrigation modernization program all over Iraq. So have the people of the marshes returned and have the bird species returned, more wildlife? Indeed. Uh, look, uh, now we have about 120,000 people have come back that are living off of the marshes. Honestly, I don't want any more people to come back because, as it is, they're overstressing the environment. It's not ready to take on that much harvesting. You talk about the birds. Uh, I have a picture on our website showing 43,000, can be counted in the picture, 43,000 marble teal, threatened species, and the world-known population before this picture was taken was only 25,000. So in one picture, we showed that this bird is doing pretty darn well. The marshes are back on their, on, their, on their way to being a resting place for the migrating birds between Africa and Siberia and so on. This is a multi-decadal project. This is probably a multi-generation project. Our duty is, is to stay in these marshes and keep them alive for our children and grandchildren to appreciate for the world to come see where mankind started. Good luck, Dr. Alwash. Thank you so much. Today's GeoQuiz is a bit of a balancing act. All eyes will be on high-wire artist Nick Walenda tonight as he walks out onto a two-inch cable suspended across Niagara Falls. The event's going to be on TV live. The tightrope artist has got fierce winds and icy spray to contend with, not to mention a shaky cable to balance on. Nick comes from a long line of Walendas. Carl Walenda, who's Nick's great-great-grandfather, founded the acrobatic family troupe. He was born in a German city in 1905, and that's a city we'd like you to name. It is a city on the Elbe River, and if you're a loyal listener to the world, 
Here's another hint. Coincidentally, it's the same German city that was the answer to yesterday's geo-quiz. We'll get the answer from a circus historian and hear more about one of the world's great circus families in just a bit. This is PRI. The World is brought to you by PRI with support from WGBH, producer of Antiques Roadshow, with family heirlooms, yard sale bargains, and long-lost items salvaged from attics and basements. Experts reveal the fascinating stories behind these hidden treasures, Mondays at 8, 7 Central, on PBS. I'm Lisa Mullins, and this is The World. The much-anticipated attempt to walk a tightrope over Niagara Falls happens tonight. The high-wire artist Nick Walenda will attempt the balancing feat with his hopefully well-balanced feet from the U.S. side of Niagara to Canada. It's the first time the stunt has been tried in 100 years. Deborah Walk is a circus historian and curator. Tell me why Nick Walenda is attempting this particular walk now. He's a Walenda. They have always pushed the laws of gravity from the great-grandfather on. They've done skywalks. They've done, you know, human pyramids that no one else thought possible. And since the uh, 20s, Carl Willenda was always thinking up the new, the unusual, something that would captivate audience. This is Carl Willenda, Nick's uh, great-great-grandfather who founded the family troupe. Correct. And Nick, it follows very much into Carl Willenda's footsteps. He recreated not only the seven-person pyramid, but the eight-person pyramid. He does these incredible skywalks, uh, not only between buildings, but going over Niagara Falls. We should say, by the way, that Carl Willenda, uh, who began performing with his family when he was six years old, was born in Magdeburg, Germany in 1905. Magdeburg is the answer to our quiz. By the way, how did the Willenda family end up here in America? Carl Willenda answered an advertisement for a courageous hand balancer. And he found out that being a courageous hand balancer meant you had to walk the wire, do a handstand in the middle of the wire. And in about 1922, Carl began his own uh, troupe. They were jugglers, they were clowns, they were aerialists, and even animal trainers. And were basically European sensations. They took a tour of Cuba, and who should be there but the great John Ringling himself, who immediately booked the troupe to uh, perform on the greatest show on earth, Ringling Brothers, Barnum and Bailey. And in 1928, they had their first American appearance in Madison Square Garden. They had no net because it was misplaced in shipping. They performed their act, and never before or after had they ever any single circus troupe have a 15-minute ovation. Okay. Now, this acrobatic stunt is shaking up the circus world. Nick Willenda, tell us about him, his spunk, and his talent. You know, when you look at uh, just walking across the falls, the last time it was done was under Grover Cleveland as president. It's an incredible undertaking, and Nick Willenda is the person who can accomplish you know, tether or not, uh, you're talking about 155 feet. You have a bouncing wire, dampness, wind, even having a tether that is not the way the Walendas do it, but not going to make, I think, that much of a difference as he walks across. But how's that different from anybody else who might attempt something 
pretty daring. The thing that you find within the Walendas is, for them, life is the wire. They do not expect to fall. People who defy, appear to defy gravity and the laws of physics, you know, see things in a way we don't all, you know, just normal people. In my dreams, I couldn't imagine, you know, walking two feet off the ground for 1,500 feet. Uh, but for the Walendas, there's always the next walk. And it's all because Carl Walenda answered an ad in the newspaper. Yes. Deborah Walk is a curator at the John and Mabel Ringling Museum of Art in Sarasota, Florida. We've got photos of the Walenda family history at theworld.org. Thanks a lot, Deborah. Thank you so much. Finally today, our Global Hit segment takes us to lots of places. The world's Alex Galifant introduces us to a musical group he met recently in New York. The band we're featuring today comes from the city of Marseille in the south of France. German-born multi-instrumentalist Uli Walters tells me it's a cosmopolitan sort of place. Technically speaking, it's still France, but it's like Brooklyn. Technically speaking, it's the United States, but it's different because lots of different uh, immigrations, first from, from Italy, Armenia, then Northern Africa, Africa too, so we have every, everybody's in Marseille, actually. And by the sounds of things, they're all in the band, too, which goes by the name Kabbalah. We have Cameroon, we have Martinique, we have Spain, we have Italy, we have Poland and Algeria. <laughs> and Russia and Germany, not to mention France. Actually, it's not as confusing as all that. There are only five people in Kabbalah. They just have a lot of hyphens in their personal histories. Like Steph Galeski, who founded the band. He's Polish-Algerian. So this is the mandalut. As in a North African cross between a mandolin and a lute. There's a lot of Algerian uh, musicians in Marseille, so I had a couple of friends and they, showed, and they told me about this, and uh, I had to get one, you know. <laughs> Kaleski's original vision was for Kabbalah to play klezma jazz, but not everyone in the band is Jewish, and with every kind of sound floating around Marseille, they realized it didn't make sense to limit things, except in one area. Most of the songs are written in Yiddish. Here's Uli Walters. And I thought, okay, German is pretty much close, but it's not. It's like Creole and French. You think, oh, this is like French. It's not. Some of the band members knew bits of the language from older relatives, but they decided not to revisit old lyrics, songs from the shtetls. Yiddish was stopped in its tracks by the Nazis, and the band wanted the language to breathe now. That was maybe the, the, the only concept we had, that just to write about things that go on today, but in Yiddish, so it's like 21st century Yiddish writing. This is Love Schnora, sexy Yiddish klezmer trip hop. Basically, it's a love song, but uh, it's a little bit, uh, I wouldn't say nasty, but uh, it uses a, a bit of Yiddish slang, you know? means it's a little bit saucy. Don't worry if you don't get it. Uli Walters says you don't need to understand Yiddish to enjoy the sound of the language. 
Booby, Boobele, it's, it's, it's the, the grandmother Zayde. Everybody knows it's Zayde. I think in New York everybody knows the, the, the word Zayde, right? For those who don't, it means grandfather. <laughs> All the Zaydes down in Florida. But but it's it has singing quality to it. When you really hear it, it sings more than German or other languages around. It's a very singing quality. Yeah. Kabbalah's on tour in the U.S. at the moment. They brought a load of instruments over from France. They also brought their own coffee. For the world, I'm Alex Galifant in New York. Kabbalah's new album is called Boxes, Bagels, and Elephants. You can watch the group perform a live version of their tune, Sugar Pie, at theworld.org. The world's theme music was composed by Eric Goldberg. From the Nan and Bill Harris studios at WGBH in Boston, I'm Lisa Mullins. Have a lovely weekend. The World is a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI and WGBH Boston, supported by the Skoll Foundation, supporting social entrepreneurs and their innovations to solve the world's most pressing problems at skoll.org. The Henry Luce Foundation for Increased Understanding of East and Southeast Asia. And by the PRI Program Fund, supporting informed risk-taking in public radio programming. Contributors include Ken and Lucy Lehman, who believe that winning workplaces respect, reward, and invest in their employees. PRI Public Radio International.